Hello and welcome to Fundamental Value, a journey to quantify crypto. I'm your host, Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. On Fundamental Value, we speak with the leading hedge funds, analysts, trading venues, and digital asset market participants. Our goal is simple, to understand how the leading minds in the, di- in the cryptocurrency space are researching, analyzing, and quantifying the value of digital assets. Quick disclaimer, this podcast was recorded and is being made available solely for informational purposes. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided in this podcast should not be construed as a provision of investment advice or as an offer to buy or sell any securities or tokens or to make or consider any investment or course of action. You can view our show notes for our complete disclosures. In today's episode, I am joined by the one and only John Tadaro, Head of Research at TradeBlock. John, it's uh, great to have you on. Yeah, it's good to be on, Josh. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, so let's uh, let's dive right into this. So, what was what was your life before crypto? Before you fell down the rabbit hole? Dull, boring, boring without crypto. Um, no, not quite. So, uh, before crypto, I worked um, in trading in on Wall Street. I worked at Citigroup, uh, and I trade mortgage bonds there, mortgage backed securities. And uh, so, so what? was the impetus for for leaving your what I'm sure was a high paying great job on Wall Street and 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 to enter into crypto and how did you first get started Yeah sure so um so I had actually heard about Bitcoin um back in 2012 2013 so I was in college at the time I was at Penn um and I started you know kind of trading it in you know on the computers in the library um and got interested in kind of digital currencies that way um, and actually, even before Bitcoin, um, I first came across Dogecoin, where me and my two brothers would uh, go on a site at the time called Doge Dice, and you kind of would, you know, like roll some dice, and it was just a, a basic gambling platform, but it actually paid you out in Dogecoin. Um, so then from Dogecoin, we saw Bitcoin, this was back in 2013, and then I started getting an interest in digital currencies that way and thought maybe, you know, Maybe there was something bigger than just gambling. There was something to kind of a, a digital currency um, that could be semi-anonymous. From that, I, you know, at the time, um, you know, 2015, there weren't, you know, a ton of areas within cryptocurrency. Um, but I had an interest in trading and finance and investment. So I went to Citigroup on Wall Street. You know, it was a difficult position to get, but got there. Um, worked for uh, about two years, so I traded mortgage-backed securities there. It was, um, you know, it was a pretty good job, um, high-paying job. A lot of folks there were, as you would bet, making decent money on Wall Street. But then in 2018, I decided to leave the leave um, trading full-time for the digital currency space um, because it kind of had been my passion that whole time. Even at City, uh, I started a crypto newsletter that I would send around to clients. I kind of was known as the crypto guy on my team. And at the, at the time, you know, we're just coming right off the 2017 bull market and crypto was, was super exciting. It made kind of, honestly, my day-to-day trading job on Wall Street seem quite boring in comparison. And it, it, it was, it's traditionally kind of seen as a, uh, an exciting job. You're on a, a trading floor with, you know, 500 other traders. There's a lot of energy, a lot of enthusiasm. And it seemed kind of slow in comparison to the crypto markets, which were at that time extremely volatile. Um, and there was always seems like some new project launching every week. So I made the plunge in uh, 2018 to do it full time. And so was there like one key moment that you remember when you were like, I got to leave my job and go into crypto full time? And, and, and when did you, you know, or what was the first role that you had? Is, is your role at TradeBlock your first full time role that you had, you've, you've had in crypto? Yeah. So, so I would say it actually, it was coming off the 2017 bull market. And it is. It was about April when prices had actually declined a decent amount, about sixty percent. And so I was thinking, okay, this is this is the time to leave Wall Street and get into crypto. It's kind of a you know bottoming out a little bit in crypto. We're down sixty percent. Uh, I didn't want to leave right in the bull market because I thought you know this thing's probably gonna probably gonna tank on me. But in twenty right after that you know initial run and collapse, it kind of seemed like okay, this was the time to now sell Wall Street at its height, if you will, and buy crypto at its um, at its valley there. Um, so yeah, so I initially actually um, started a, an investment fund briefly with my two brothers, and it was just kind of our own own capital. Did that throughout that summer, and then in the fall, I joined um, TradeBlock full time as their head of research. Um, it was hard to put out, um, you know, extensive research content in the space. So yeah, so TradeBlock was kind of my full 
job with with a with a company that had you know a broader team but um before that i had kind of started that investment fund with my two brothers and so i think you mentioned you know kind of briefly that your role um you know was was research i mean what what kind of mandate did you have when you first you know joined trade block and has your role kind of evolved over the years you know what kind of research were you doing at first and how has that changed yeah, it's definitely changed. I, I would say initially at that time, it was a little bit more um, focused kind of around news events that would happen. So analysis of news. So, you know, maybe there was an exchange that would get hacked at that time. And so we would put together, you know, the number of exchange attacks over time and show that, oh, 2018 had, you know, more exchange attacks than some other year. And then it's evolved a little bit more to to themes within the space. So less of, you know, oh, here's a news event and here's how many exchange attacks happened, but more kind of, you know, what's the, you know, it, it relates to this podcast, but what's the fundamental value of some underlying network, right? Um, what are the cash flows from some decentralized project? What are the, the fees generated? Could you build a financial model from that? If you can, what would the financial model look like? Can you apply that to other cryptocurrencies and networks? Um, so I would say it's it's definitely evolved from kind of initially being research on a, a big event and news event to kind of deeper understanding um, and building out models of networks and, and digital currencies. Yeah, I'm I'm super excited to kind of hop into your thoughts on on what you know, makes something have fundamental value and, and how you do this analysis. Before we, you know, kind of get into the meat, you know, I'd love if you could give us a bit of a background on on what TradeBlock is and, and what types of products and services, you know, for those that are listening, um, you know, you know, d- does TradeBlock offer? Yeah, sure. So TradeBlock offers digital currency indices. So we have 10 reference rates for digital currencies. Bitcoin was our first reference rate launched, the XPX index. That was back in 2014, and it's it's one of the, the longest standing Bitcoin reference rates in the space. Um, so we have indices, and then we also have an electronic trading platform and market and blockchain data. Uh, our electronic trading platform functions, you know, somewhat similarly to like a, a Bloomberg terminal, where it allows traders to to come in every day and have kind of one central place where they can chat with clients, they can place orders, they can do accounting functionality, um, they can manage orders, etc. Um, and so our clients are mostly geared for institutionals, uh, institutional customers, we don't really um, have the, the setup for, for, you know, everyday retail folks. So we're mostly geared toward institutions. And yeah, just to, to recap, our main three business areas are indices, market and blockchain data and an electronic trading platform. And so what types of customers do you guys, I mean, I know you mentioned institutions more broadly, but to me, that's kind of a broad term. Like what types of customers do you guys service? I mean, I know, you know, one example is, is, is your indices power uh, GBTC, for example, the Grayscale product. And so, you know, like what, what are the different types of customers that will take your indices versus taking APIs of your data versus actually using the front end? Yeah, sure. So I would say um, hedge funds um, would be more interested in the data. I would say the indices, the indices is really a range, right? So OTC desks use it because they like to, to, you know, quote prices around our indices. ATM, Bitcoin ATMs across the world will use it as the, you know, the price to transact at when you go into an ATM and, and look to buy Bitcoin funds. As you mentioned, you know, Grayscale, they have in, in their investment products that, that use our indices. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, and even uh, other, other funds throughout the world as well, um, we kind of see a lot of interest in that area, mainly because our, our indices, any, any large institution that's working with regulators to an extent, um, they will look to use the trade block indices because we have been around for so long and we are considered um, quite high caliber that we have more comfortability and familiarity with regulators that these, you know, kind of large funds that are launching investment products that are you know traded in public markets that they kind of need a, a product that they can benchmark their assets to that you know can ha- hold up to regulators and some of the more red tape bureaucratic if you will um, aspects of the space so what what goes into building a reliable reference rate um, and, and a reliable index and you know what are what are some of the challenges there? Um, you know, you know, for example, we've seen the issue with, you know, BitMEX's reference price, you know, with some, some kind of, I guess, for lack of better words, fuckery going on there. 
where uh, you know one of the three markets that they had previously included, you know, was was more liquid, and so one large trade crashed that market, which caused cascading liquidations on Bitmax. And so clearly, you know, building or building reliable reference pricing is just not the most straightforward thing. So I'd kind of love to hear your thoughts on, you know, what needs to be done there. You know, how do you deal with outliers and, and build outlier detection, and and how do you even figure out which markets to include? Yeah, sure. So yeah, we've definitely seen with Bitmax and others where. Uh, you can manipulate prices at one of the spot exchanges that the derivative exchange is is benchmarking to, uh, and they can throw off those derivatives markets and, and result in um, maybe unwarranted liquidations. So what we do, we kind of get around that. First, we include um, typically a few more exchanges than BitMEX do. Is they 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 do three, um, and we, we typically we aim for four, four to five, uh, but typically four. So we add a, a, another component to it. Uh, additionally, our indices, what we do is we have proprietary technology that we've actually we remove outliers and anomalies as they occur in real time. So if you see some extremely divergent pricing on, say, Bitstamp relative to Coinbase and Kraken and Binance US, our indices automatically de-weight the contributing prices from Bitstamp and leave the others intact. So if our reference rate were, were used, for example, in some of these instances, it would be much more difficult to you know, have one exchange that's showing anomalistic prices and influencing the reference rate because our indices would de-weight that. Now, if all the exchanges went down at the same time, then, then you know, we would effectively um, be in the same boat as, as you know, BitMEX and others. But historically, we haven't really seen that happen. So what our reference rates do is they, they if you plot them out relative to BitMEX and, and some of these other platforms, you'll see kind of a, a much smoother... Um, price chart, and that's because we're not, you know, you know, we're not overweighted to to one exchange that might be going through something that's very specific to just that exchange and not emblematic of where the broader market is actually trading at. And so, how many assets you guys are actually doing reference prices and index, you know, building for? So we have ten currently, um, and we're, we're we're always adding new ones. So we'll we'll add probably a next a few more in the next few months, um, and probably continue to add. Uh, I would say one. One area that's a little bit of a challenge that I don't think people think of is um, we have a pretty strict criteria for for our exchanges, for our constituent exchanges. Um, and so these assets need to, to really have certain exchanges to list them before we can include it, right? So if there's, you know, um, I don't know, say there's an asset out there that we want to launch an index on, but there's only one exchange that trades it, and maybe there's three exchanges that have a bunch of fake volume that trade it, we're not going to take prices from those exchanges that have you know, been known to fake volumes uh, because then it's just going to jeopardize the integrity of that index. So we really need kind of three to four legitimate exchanges um, that have listed a certain asset before we can then go out and put an index on it. And so how do you define what, it, like in my head, I kind of know what I think a legitimate exchange is. Like, I'm like, oh, like if you say Coinbase, I'm like, that's legit. If you say Gemini, I'm like, that's legit, right? If you say Binance at this point, I'm like, you know, or even Huobi or OKEX, I'm like, yeah, these are more legitimate. LMAX, more legitimate, right? Yeah. Like, how do you, is there actually a process that's in place there? Are there certain criteria that you're looking at? So we do, yeah. So so first off, um, most of our clients in the U.S., we are international with clients in Europe and Asia, but for our criteria for indices, we make sure that these exchanges that are listing the assets are U.S. accessible. So first we look at U.S. accessible exchanges. They don't have to be based in the U.S., uh, but they just have to be open to U.S. users. So Binance International, for instance, is not you know theoretically open to U.S. users, but Binance.us is, so we would look at Binance.us. Within that, we then look at exchanges that have, you know, kind of a public founders, public board. There's actually legitimate um, corporate leaders. It's not, you know, sometimes you have exchanges where, oh, it's anonymous. Who's who's behind it? Who's the CEO? We don't know. Um, so we look for exchanges that have kind of a transparent corporate structure where you can dig into that some. And then, um, you know, his, history of, of faking volumes. There's been some exchanges that have um, historically faked volumes. And so it's always a little tougher for us to analyze those and, and then kind of dig into reports of, of whether they've flushed out some of that behavior. Um, and if not, then, then, you know, we would continue to, to not look into those. I would say, though, most of the U.S. accessible exchanges that have kind of a public, transparent, corporate structure and corporate board, 
they um, they historically haven't really faked volume. So yeah, your Coinbase, your Krakens, your Bitstamps, your Almax, those are all pretty legitimate. And we have extreme confidence and faith in them. And as such, those type of exchanges are included in our, our reference rates. And so, you know, speaking of faking volumes, I mean, are you looking at, are, are you actually doing a lot of your research there? Or are you relying on a lot of the third party research that's kind of been done, you know, just to kind of give you a general sense of what's going on? So it's it's typically um, third party research we we that we rely on because we have found kind of what we think of the sweet spot is four exchanges. It's allowed us, and because we also have some of the most strictest strictest criteria out there for inclusion, it's allowed us where we can kind of narrow it down to highly reliable exchanges. You know, um, and so we're we're not that often I would say we're not in the weeds where we have some exchange where we would need to go out and do our own report on to see if they're faking volumes or not. I would say right, you're not due diligencing like Bitmax or like gate IO or KuCoin to figure out whether or not they should be included. Right. Exactly. Um, because, you know, we do kind of target the four exchanges, you know, that are us accessible. It kind of narrows it down where we're pretty confident in the four exchanges um, the U- that are us accessible. You know, basically there's a range of, probably um, up to eight exchanges that are kind of in our universe that we monitor volumes for to see for inclusion, because there's kind of eight exchanges we're pretty comfortable with. Anything beyond that, we, we don't really, uh, we can't really get comfortable with. And I would say if you narrow that down even more, you know, within that eight that we're comfortable with, five to six, we're highly comfortable with, you know, that's like your Coinbase, you're, you're you know, 99.99% confident in them. And so that kind of really narrows it down and makes it more helpful. Right. That makes sense. And have you ever had to remove an exchange? Um, yeah. I mean, so, well, so our, what our algorithm does is it de-weights exchanges if they're having animalistic behavior. So, you know, Bitstamp, if Bitstamp gets, like some exchanges, if they get an exchange attack, we will de-weight them. Our algorithm will de-weight them as that's occurring so that there's nothing wonky that's happening um, with the index. So, We'll remove something like that. Um, and in the past, we haven't had to, to do any uh, recently because of any concerns related to, you know, any malfeasance. But we have, you know, removed exchanges just because they no longer hit our volume requirements. So we have kind of volume requirements where we'll move exchanges around depending on who has the most volume. And so we do these quarterly updates every quarter where we go through that you know, kind of eight that list of eight to 10 or so exchanges and parse it by volume, right? So sometimes we'll move an exchange if they, you know, don't, they're no no longer doing as much volume as maybe another exchange that took market share, but we haven't had to remove any due to malfeasance in quite, quite some time. And are you guys looking at like an average price of VWAP? Like how, how do you guys actually determine, you know, what the price is obviously without giving away any, any secrets, but. Yeah. So it's, it's a volume weighted average price. And yeah, it's, it's updated on a you know continuous basis. Um, we provide the reference rate um, at incremental periods, and it's, you know it's twenty four seven. And like I mentioned, historically, it's you know around four exchanges where we're getting those prices from, and then it's weighted based on you know as I mentioned, as the volume they're doing um, at each exchange. So if you know say Coinbase is doing most of the volume, then the price will be weighted towards Coinbase. And so I'd I'd love to now you know dive deep into research, right? Your your job is 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 head of research, and you know you mentioned earlier that you know you and your your brothers had a had a fund that you guys or maybe continue to be involved with. Um, so would would kind of you know love to hear. I know you were you were trading, so maybe you weren't doing you know so much research, uh, you know, while, when you're on Wall Street. But would love to hear if you know what if any research techniques you brought over. Uh, from traditional finance, and what did you have to adapt for the digital currency market, both when you initially got started with your brothers, uh, but also, you know, having been at TradeBlock for a few years now, you know, what what's kind of changed over the years? Yeah, sure. So I would say initially, when I first got involved, you know, especially true way back in you know 2014 or so, but even right after I left City and you know working with my brothers. Um, and even to the, you know, the first, you know, six months to a year or so at TradeBlock, felt like a lot of assets moved on momentum and technicals um, and news events. You always had, you know, oh, there's going to be a big event that's going to come up. You know, maybe, um, you know, back in the day, it used to be um, the big, you know, consensus event. Oh, that's going to impact this price. Oh, this token's got a 
major announcement coming out in the next few weeks. And yeah, I remember all the Ripple conferences and XRP, or I guess at that point, Ripple's price. Yeah, exactly. Ripple was a big one. The, the Ripple Swell conference, it was always, oh, how's the yep. price going to do? So I'd say initially, um, the research was kind of focused around price momentum leading up into um, an event, coming down from event, SEC actions, um, and, you know, any regulatory news, how, what's going to happen if an ETF is declined or approved, stuff like that. And then from that, I think we've moved, um, it's almost, it's interesting, we've moved more micro, I think, for these smaller assets. Um, and actually looking at fundamental value makes more sense now. Um, and then for the larger assets, we've actually moved more macro. And I would say both of those actually play more into my background uh, when I was on Wall Street than initially. So even though I traded on Wall Street, I traded mortgage bonds. And mortgage bonds, they don't really have any technical indicators because they're so illiquid, you can't really plot any moving averages with, right? So you have to really look more at what's the fundamental value of this bond? What are the cash flows like? What am I getting paid? Um, who could I sell it to? What's the liquidity? Is there a liquidity premium? And then trade it that way. So that um, applies more so today than I think even initially because... I would say early on with crypto, everything was moving on momentum, technical indicators. And now your Bitcoins, um, your your larger cap digital currencies, I think move more with the macro environment. So let's looking at what's the Fed doing? Uh, is a stimulus package going to go through? What are interest rates looking like? What's gold doing? So that kind of plays into my traditional Wall Street background. And then I would also say the more nitty gritty analyzing cash flows um, plays in as well. So for some of these DeFi projects now, you can build out, you know, with the, the fees that they're generating on these networks, you can build out a DCF, a discounted cash flow analysis, and kind of arrive at some, you know, present value of what you think the network is worth. And there's kind of a ton of those um, areas that you can borrow from traditional finance now and apply to. Uh, price to revenues is a new one. There's kind of this metric where you can look at the price of the token relative to the revenue generated on the network um, and kind of derive uh, a P to S, a P to R multiple if you will. And that's all things that uh, in the traditional finance world, you traded assets off, right? Um, typically, you would look at price to earnings, P to E, but you could also look at price to sales, price to revenue. So P to S, P to R, and trade assets that way. So uh, so I would say nowadays that the research has actually evolved and fits what I worked on at Wall Street a little better than it even did initially. And so you mentioned with a lot of these, I, I think your focus more, you know, with your comment was on DeFi tokens, right? Where it's a little bit easier to assess, you know, what the what the revenues generated from these from these, um, you know, DeFi platforms are. But how does that kind of extend across different types of tokens? Like, what is your perspective, for example, on on you know uh, assessing the fundamentals of Ethereum, right? You know, does the success of DeFi necessarily mean that Ethereum should be more successful? And is the, the, the raising of Ethereum fees a good thing because it's, it's generating more fees for the network or is it a bad thing? Like, like how do you think of kind of the platform, platform versus application argument? Yeah, it's, 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 it gets a little more hairy and a little more difficult um, because, yeah, to your point, you know, if you're generating more fees, yeah, that's good from the network in the sense that if you want to look at it like a company – and see, oh, there's more fees, there's more revenue. Ethereum's generating all this revenue. But at the same time, you know, those fees are also making it more costly to use the network. So there's going to be somewhat of a ceiling. People aren't going to pay, you know, 10 grand to move an ERC-20 token or to use some DeFi smart contract um, because Ethereum gas fees are so high. So we definitely, you know, Ethereum needs to, to solve the scalability issue to make it where you can have lots of revenue generated, but because you're doing tons of transactions, not you're generating lots of revenue because it's so damn expensive to use the network. Um, so it, it, we definitely need to solve the scalability problem. And I think as DeFi grows, um, then the value of Ethereum does grow. And part of that is, you know, it's less looking at it from, well, what are the fees generated, but also just looking at it from, you know, capital movement. So with, with Ethereum, I would say um, you have to look at the capital flows, right? So if there are a ton of people using Ethereum to lock it up in DeFi smart contracts um, or for other purposes, then you're just taking a ton of supply out of the system, right? And as the demand grows for DeFi, the demand for Ethereum for lockup across these platforms grows as well. So you have kind of this buying pressure for Ethereum, and you're also taking some of that supply offline because they're locking it up in these contracts. They're not able to sell it 
that's going to slow your velocity down. And so if you have a lot of buying pressure and no selling pressure because there's not a ton of turnover, then the price of that asset is just going to go up. Um, so I think that's how you would look at Ethereum. And I think it's a little different from, uh, say, Uniswap. You know, They just launched their new token. I think you would value the Uniswap token by looking more at what are the fees that could be paid out to me as a token holder. Ethereum, because it's more of that base layer, you would look at it as not necessarily the fees generated, but what are capital flows going to be? What is lockup going to be? How useful is this currency going to be? Is Ether going to be you know, used in a ton of DeFi applications and that's going to grow? Or are they going to use a different currency and we're not going to see much uh, usage of Ether? So I think that's how you would value the base layer. And then the stuff built on top of it, you would probably look more at the, the fees that are generated. And so... You know, to me, when I see, you know, all this Ethereum being locked in DeFi, right, in, in this kind of massive demand for Ethereum, I mean, if you look at a chart, I think we may have released it or we're planning on releasing it of the price of uh, of Ethereum kind of next to, um, you know, either the aggregate market cap of, of DeFi or the, the amount of the TVL of uh, the, the total value of Ethereum locked in DeFi, you see that Ethereum rose first, right? Because investors needed Ethereum to kind of get exposure into DeFi. But to me, that reminds me a bit of the ICO boom uh, of 2017 and 2018, right? Where all these ICOs were raising capital on ETH and it kind of generated this massive um, ongoing you know, demand for Ethereum. But once the ICO bubble kind of you know, popped a little bit, that demand diminished. And so do you think that, you know, we're going to see this sustainable continued increase in demand to, you know, lock, you know, value in in DeFi? Do you think it will continue to be Ethereum that's locked? Could it be other assets? And what impact is that going to have on Ethereum? Yeah, sure. So I would say, um, first off, a little different from ICOs. Generally, if, you know, a project raised money and they were paid in Ether. So a bunch of people bought Ether to get into an ICO. Uh, a lot of those ICOs ended up selling Ether. So it's like, you know, people bought it and then a week later it was sold maybe. So it kind of had a high turnover. Um, but DeFi, ideally people would buy it and then maybe lock it up in some DeFi contract, maybe for six months or so. So it's not getting sell, sold immediately on the back end. Um, so I would say I think that the lockup is going to be a little different. And then also, um, you know, ICOs, it was, it was definitely a bubble. We would look at, you know, is DeFi going to be a bubble? And I would say DeFi has some some longer legs to go um, unless unless regulation really comes in and clamps down. If regulation comes in and clamps down, then we very similarly to the ICO market would just see kind of an explosion and then it kind of dying from there. But if regulation doesn't step in and, and regulators allow the space to grow, um, and you also raise the question of can DeFi even be shut down by regulators? And so if not, and DeFi does continue to grow, which which I think it will, because I think some of these applications do have real value um, and real usefulness, uh, then Ethereum should continue to do well. Now, to your point where you raised the question, well, what if you know a different asset is used um, and it's not Ether? Maybe you know, you know, wrapped Bitcoin becomes the thing that's moving around. Um, or maybe Uniswap, Uni token, that becomes the, the currency of choice in the network. What if it's what if it's Doge? Or what if it's Doge? Um, <laughs> And those are all certainly possibilities. And I think that would be one of the, the biggest threats to Ethereum is if, and I, I think um, a great example would actually be stable coins. Stable coins very well could be the kind of the, the currency of the Ethereum ecosystem, um, whether you're moving it, you know, diff, diss assets around to wallets or exchanges, it could be, it's probably a stable coin because you don't want to take the volatility. Or if you even want to move it into a DeFi smart contract and, you know, farm some yield, um, you might be using a stable coin. So I think there is the concern there that are we are people really going to be buying ETH to move it around? Or are they just going to you know buy tethers and move those around or buy USDC and move those around? That could be the um, the kind of the concern for ETH. So as you were talking, actually, somebody just sent me a uh, crypto art piece sells for $130,000 at Christie's auction house. So Christie's, which is one of the largest, most established auction house, just had an $131,250 non-fungible token sale. Wondering what your thoughts are on non-fungible tokens and whether or not that that's going to have any you know value accrual to Ethereum or, or anywhere else. So Josh, I was the one who actually just bought that. Uh, no. Oh, perfect. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, so I, I wouldn't buy that. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I, I think NFTs, um, I mean, they've been around for a while and they were, you know, kind of cool and, and started off gimmicky. And I would say it's, it steals, still feels gimmicky. And I think any useful purpose with that um, would probably lie outside of the, the art space. Uh, and maybe there would actually be some functional value to, to NFTs. Um, but just the, the art aspect itself, I don't think it's really going to have a ton of value. Um, I think this, if you, if you saw NFTs kind of picked up right after the DeFi bubble was crashing uh, and it really just felt like yeah, these native crypto users needed another sector to kind of go into and kind of pump up, but they're just, there isn't a ton of fees generated through that. Um, yeah. You can see some artwork that sold for a hundred grand or so, but, but you know, a, I think the art aspect is a lot weaker than real, art that's out there but on top of it i mean DeFi is the potential to be a whole new financial system that is going to be much bigger are you are you telling me that you're not investing in crypto finalies uh (laughs) nfts i put a bit in but apparently it was not high enough (laughs) no um i've I've, i I haven't bought an nft there is uh there is some tokens out there that kind of play into that space um I think I think one of the, the leading ones right now is Rarible, if I'm not mistaken. They have a token. I didn't even know that. Yeah, uh, I believe so. Um, but so I, I've looked into that. I, I've actually done some some analysis on it because you know the, the space was hot for a bit, and, and it's interesting. It's probably worth keeping an eye on. But right now, I, I just think DeFi is going to be way bigger, and there's way more useful purpose for decentralized finance than there is for you know decentralized you, collectibles you, you made you made an interesting point in there and it's a thing that i like to, to to bring up a lot right you know the fact that you know DeFi was hot cooled down and then people moved into nfts and that feels like what happens with crypto it feels like for the last you know x number of years we've always chased a narrative kind of got somewhere but then it turned into a bubble and then it popped and then we moved on to the next thing like you know it was first you know Bitcoin was this digital cash, right? And Roger Ver and that whole crew, you know, you know, went around selling that narrative, right? But then, you know, it turns out it's actually really expensive and slow to transact on Bitcoin and it's not great for cash, right? And then we had this Bitcoin cash fork and in the midst of that, we had this ICO boom, right? And everybody got super excited about ICOs, but then, you know, everybody wasn't so excited and the regulars came, regulators came down, right? And it crashed. Then, you know, we had, you know, this little piece with stable coins, but that didn't really go anywhere. And then we had this IEO boom and then it was stable coins again. And then it was DeFi. And now it's NFTs. Like, like what is the use case for crypto that you think is going to stick? Do you think it's DeFi? Do you think DeFi is crypto's first true? Like what is the first true real use case of crypto? Sure. So, I would say first off, yeah, crypto loves narratives. If you can get behind a narrative, a theme of, oh, this is going to revolutionize the space, that's what everyone's just moving money towards. And so whether that's NFTs, whether that's DeFi, whether that's Bitcoin, the space loves narratives. And usually they're pretty short term. It's like, you know, three to six month narrative. You can make a ton of money outside of that. You know, you probably shouldn't have too long term of views because you're, you're not going to make money. I would say even within the DeFi boom, I think there's a ton of promise, but I would caution that the only people using DeFi and playing with it were already crypto native users. My aunt wasn't, you know, going on DeFi to get a loan. My, you know, my friends at City weren't, you know, farming yield on SushiSwap, providing liquidity. You know, City didn't o- open up a SushiSwap liquidity desk. I think it still was very much crypto native people testing out, playing around with the stuff. They were get, getting some free tokens from farming. Um, so there's just a ton, a ton and, of... And I feel like a lot of it was VCs just sloshing money back and forth between different protocols. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, there's a ton of VCs playing around in the space. So it was kind of the folks already in crypto got behind DeFi. So it's not like we necessarily saw all these people in the normal world go, damn, I really need some decentralized financial products. Let me get involved here. We went through that whole bubble and kind of bust right now with just so your, your girlfriend wasn't buying hot dog finance. And kimchi <laughs> finance. Exactly. She, uh, maybe, maybe the, the spaghetti one, the pasta ones. <laughs> is there, is there a new spaghetti one? I, I like, I mean, we're at this point. I wouldn't be surprised if there is. I think they cooled off for the time being, but yeah, I think we had a few pasta, spaghettis. Um, we had kimchi, big, big ZD, yeah, big ZD. Um, <laughs> and then um, 
I think some of the rug pulls kind of scared people and it was, it was bound to cool off. Um, but I think over the, the long run there, there is some real value there. And I think there's still a lot of, um, so how does that get unlocked that value, right? How do, how does, you know, you mentioned that your aunt isn't in DeFi, but do you think there is going to be a time in the future where, where she is potentially in DeFi? And, and if you do think that's the case, how do we get there? Yeah, I definitely think there is. And I think it'll probably look more so of like a hybrid model. I think, I don't think we're going to be in a fully decentralized world for quite some time. I think we're going to have more of a hybrid model where you have aspects of the centralized world and the decentralized world meet. And I could see my aunt or someone use that product. And a great example would be um, like USDC or some of these centralized stable coins, right? Tether, where they have a gate. Those products are probably the most used by the normal people. And whether that's, you know, you're in some country and there's political instability, so you want to get like a USD-like asset. And so you're, you've got Tether and now you're moving it around to avoid capital controls. Or maybe, um, you know, Facebook stablecoin. Facebook stablecoin was going to be another great example where it's kind of this centralized, decentralized stablecoin hybrid, right? And so I think that's where DeFi is going to to, to be the most value to the normal people. Um, and so you'll probably see, you know, one, one area that I think is super interesting that we haven't really quite seen yet is a debt market for the decentralized world. Um, and I think that that's going to come soon. And once you bring that on, um, there's really a lot of interesting aspects you can do. And that can add financing and, and credit to companies in the decentralized world that currently don't have it. We don't really have a system for credit in the decentralized world. And so that could come at a certain point in time. And you add maybe hybrid components with the traditional world, maybe capital from the traditional world, or maybe some some legal components you could port over, I guess. Um, and you would kind of see that hybrid. And I think that's where we're going to start to see the real value. And so I guess we've kind of hit on this, right, in, in, in thinking about and assessing fundamentals, but how do you actually go about doing due diligence on a token, you know, whether that be, you know, in your role at, at TradeBlock, you know, just, just looking into something and doing research, or maybe with your personal investments or, you know, your, your fund with your brother's investments, like how do you actually do due diligence and how important do you think it actually is? You know, you mentioned with uh, exchanges, you know, looking at, you know, who, who, you know, is on the board and who's involved, you know, to actually understand who's involved with these, you know, these, these protocols and these applications because i mean with all this you know rise of defi i mean with with chef nami for example you know a lot of this is just you know it's just anonymous so how, how do you go about that yeah yeah sure um so a few things what i like to look for one is you, you like i mentioned earlier you need a narrative there needs to be a theme that's developing and so defi you started to have that theme where people could see hey maybe this could be the future right um, it needs to kind of be big enough where people could believe in it. Um, then you need to have some real fundamental value that can fuel that narrative. And it's also could be potentially attractive for an investment. So I think one thing are is those cash, the cash flows. These decentralized financial products are actually generating a decent amount of cash. At its peak, Uniswap was doing a ton of fees. You know, I think it was you know, $3 million or so a day. That's a decent amount for a startup. If the token can capture some of those fees, which in the future it likely will, they probably will vote on some mechanism where the you know the cash flows can go to token holders, that could potentially be an attractive dividend yield, right? So you add something like that where there's some fundamental value, there's actually some cash being generated, there's some revenue, if you will. There's an interesting theme. It's, it looks like it's got room to grow in the space. And then you have a, a strong team that's behind it. Ideally, you would want to see, you know, someone who's who's kind of public facing. And the chef Nami gives a, a great example where, you know, you could have got in really early on SushiSwap, not done a ton of due diligence and made a lot of money because the asset went up so much. I would say that's probably showcasing that you're probably on the later end of that cycle and you're probably closer to the top of the bubble, which we kind of were when SushiSwap launched and and all those uh, anonymous ones launched. I think if you initially got involved in, you know, band protocol um, and, um, and some of the other ones early on, which had done very well, Kava and others, uh, Ren, those all had public facing teams. Um, those all had people working on these projects for six months to a year, even longer, three years or so. So you had kind of th those core things there. And I think that that's still very important to look at. 
Now, in the meantime, if you can go put some money on SushiSwap uh, and you know generate some free tokens from farming and then dump those and make a ton of money, yeah, sure, I think that's that's definitely worth doing. Um, but you can also get burned very easily, which I think a lot of people did as the bubble kind of unwound a little bit. And so how do you think then about valuing, uh, uh, you know, an, a proper cryptocurrency, right? We, we, you know, I know we haven't seen like a new, you know, by, by cryptocurrency, I mean like a currency, like, a you know, I, you know, I guess Bitcoin or like even a, a Zcash or a Dash, like, like, how do you actually assess the value of something like a Bitcoin? Like, what are Bitcoin's fundamentals versus, you know, some of these, you know, DeFi tokens? Yeah, sure. I think you would have to look at them very differently. I think it would be akin to talking to someone who um, is a research analyst on FX markets and a research analyst in the equity markets. You know, the equity guy is going to be looking at cash flows. He's going to be looking at earnings. He's going to be looking at valuation. Um, And then the FX guy is going to be looking at global macro moves and how related those are together. And so Bitcoin, I think, kind of follows the the macro moves. I think you can't really value it from a cash flow standpoint. You can't look at it. Is is Bitcoin risk off? That's that's a great question. I would say Bitcoin right now is still risk on. I know a lot of folks in the space want to paint the narrative as it's it's digital gold and it's risk off and it's like a treasury bond. But I I would say, I mean, even just personally, if if you're talking to someone and the, the whole world's falling apart and someone thinks they're going to lose their job, and there's going to be concerns and money in the future, I don't think they're going to say, oh, here, let me hold on to this very early stage, kind of still speculative coin. Um, that's going to you know, rip right now. They're holding on to it because they think it's going to go up a lot, which means it likely has a lot of volatility to it. Um, and it's risk on, you know, something that's, you know, going to go going to go up just a little bit that that's that's more risk off there's not a ton of room to run so i would say it's almost hard for an asset that's immature that has a ton of upside to be fully um risk off now i would say the one area that bitcoin is risk off in is is political environment so i do think if the if the you know the the united states as a political system starts to really crumble i think bitcoin could be attractive because now you're sitting there going well i don't want to hold dollars i don't want to hold bonds uh bitcoin and gold are the only things so from that standpoint bitcoin is very much risk off but if you're just looking at an economic situation where the economy might be shitty for the next three to six months I would say Bitcoin would trade uh, risk on where it would decline. And then when you think the economy is going to start doing well, people are going to start betting more on these highly speculative early stage technologies. I think Bitcoin would be levered to that trade. And do you think at some point in the future, Bitcoin will be more risk off? And do you think that, you know, crypto will just be a mix of risk on and risk off assets? Like, you know, could, could, could Ethereum be risk off at some point in the future? Like, or, or, you know, and, and things on top like DeFi be risk on? Like, how do you think about that? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, eventually we're, I mean, it's kind of the stated purpose of Bitcoin. So eventually we're going to get to a point where it becomes mature enough. People are going to have enough faith in it and it's going to be better than the alternative US dollars or, you know, the euro where it's going to very much be risk off, whether if there's political instability in the US and maybe even get to a point where even if there's just a little bit of economic instability, people are going to rush to Bitcoin because they know there's always going to be Bitcoin in their treasure or you know, ledger, wherever they have it in their hard wallets. No government's going to come in and really be able to seize it. No one's going to be able to inflate it. So there's that security there. And so I think it could very much get to a point where it is treated as risk off. Ether, Ethereum, you know, could eventually, if it becomes the kind of de facto currency and maybe it replaces Bitcoin even, it could have its, you know, as a store value risk off and used as, you know, a currency to, to move assets around in this Ethereum ecosystem. Sure. Um, but I would say the stuff that's built on top of these layers, whether it's DeFi or, you know, the next NFT project, those should pretty much always trade risk on because, those are just really kind of beta plays on, you know, how much fees they could generate. They they don't really have, um, you know, it'd be like Facebook shares. No one would really rush into those if they think the economy is not going to do well. Um, it should really just be levered to, to how many users, how much fees they're going to generate in the future. And if you think that's down, you're going to sell it. And if you think they got more room to go in the future, then you're going to buy it. And so you mentioned earlier that originally you were looking at things like news and uh, and technicals. 
And, and so, you know, now it seems like you're focused more on, you know, like DCF analysis and things like that. But, but broadly speaking, you know, what types of data points are you looking at? I mean, I, I know that one thing that TradeBlock uh, looks at is on-chain indicators. And so I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what types of, of data do you think is most interesting um, and, and most predictive in, in both the short and long term? And what types of data and information do you think are still immature missing in this market? Yeah, sure. Um, so, so I would say definitely over the long term, it's important to analyze kind of the on-chain fees. Um, so that that's definitely one you need to look at. I also think you need to look at kind of mining activity. Um, Josh, I know you know because I did a you know a talk with you back in May before the halving, but we TradeBlock has put out a ton of reports on Bitcoin mining and, and the health of the mining industry. So that's another thing that I think is important to look at. Um, hash rate data whether miners are profitable, how that changes as halvings come and go, um, and how that changes as new mining equipment is launched, stuff like that. So th- those areas, I think, are very important to to analyze as kind of the long-term health of the industry. So, you know, with the Ethereum ecosystem, with DeFi, what are cash flows looking like? Um, what are were new projects launching? What are they looking like? What's their team looking like? And then with Bitcoin, kind of what is mining looking like? What is on-chain data looking like? What are the hash rates looking like? What is the, the macro environment looking like? Um, and then in terms of, you know, what data is kind of missing, I think it's, it's still a little bit difficult now to get a ton of really good market data on stuff beyond just the spot markets. Um, so derivatives, what is kind of the derivatives market data look like? I think you could, you could build some really interesting analysis there, at least in the short term, because I do still think in the short term, crypto does trade a, a ton on momentum and less, less so on news momentum, but more so on price momentum. And so I think it's less important to look at, you know, news and what big announcements are coming up, but more so important to look at, you know, what is derivatives data looking like? I think there's a ton that you could parse out from that that could inform some pretty smart investment decisions. Um, and I think it's just tough because there's there's not really a ton of great places that that offer derivatives market data. It is something that we we want to look to get into and, and build out over time. But but um, our focus is mostly on spot uh, market data for the time being. Uh, but I think that's an area where there's there's some opportunities from a, a data provider standpoint. And so you also mentioned there, well, actually, one thing before we go into that, you know, in terms of the, the news data, it's actually really interesting that you mentioned it because we've done a, a bunch of research on this, which isn't public yet, but is going public in the next week on what types of news actually moves the price of crypto. And it's it's pretty interesting. And, and some of it is counterintuitive into what's actually moving the price. You know, there, there's this big perception in the market that listings actually have the biggest impact on price. But if you look at exchange listings, on average, their price impact isn't actually the largest, and it's not necessarily sustainable. Um, but you know, not gonna, not not to get into the weeds, but there there are things like you know mergers and acquisitions when you know tokens are acquired by others, or when when projects like FTX go out and buy uh, you know things like Blockfolio that are seemingly having a much bigger impact on the market. So it seems like there is still a lot of news driven price movement. But you know, a lot of it, and the, the research will kind of show, is that it's not the types of movements that people were historically thinking about, like just random announcements, like partnerships with Google. Even though we saw that with EOS the other day, moved the market by like ten percent. Yeah, yeah, I think I think it's a great point, and that's something that um, I, I should have emphasized. Yeah, there's kind of a I I think a bifurcation in the news where yeah, nowadays you're looking at okay, FTX is going to go do something big with Solana. They're going to use Solana for all their new products, and you see you know that token rip or you know ftx goes out there and starts building with sushi swap and you see some news headlight where that headline where that comes across that's going to move markets um but yeah i think the the news that we used to see a few years ago in crypto where it's like oh yeah xyz partnered with this company or john mccaffrey retweets this one and endorses blah 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 or even you know we all we would used to always see those comments from some expert where it'd come across you know tom lee sees 30 grand bitcoin in the next six weeks or mike novogratz does i don't think yeah yeah 100 that's moving markets anymore Uh 100%. I still remember an article coming out about Matty Greenspan moving the market and then Matty Greenspan retweeted it and he's like, big if true or something. <laughs> um, and, and so funny you mentioned partnerships. Uh, the one week probability, we've looked at over 10,000 data points. And this is the only thing I'll give away. You got to read the report for everything else. But partnerships are only moving the market uh, upwards 53.9% of the time after a week. 
So not quite the the guarantee that used to used to occur a couple a couple of years ago. But I think it's also just a matter of are we in a bull or a bear market, right? Because I feel like news moves the market a lot more in bull markets than it necessarily does in bear markets, right? Because in bear markets, it feels like everything's going to go down no matter what happens. Like you know this you know, this token could get listed on Coinbase for the first time, but if the rest of the market goes down by ten percent, inevitably within a day, this thing is going to head back down too. Yep. Yep. Exactly. I think in um, you know, kind of the the bear markets of late 2018, early 2019, there was no positive news that could move the market. You could it could come out that Goldman Sachs is market buying Bitcoin, and <laughs> it. Would. I don't know about that one. Maybe that one would move the news, but that would move <laughs> the price. So. Maybe if they, if they actually <laughs> are market buying it. Um, but yeah, it got to a period of time where they're just people, you know, no longer were buying on that. And I think because they had gotten burned so much over some period of time where, you know, some headline will come out, whether there's some partnership or, you know, John McAfee says XYZ, um, and it would go up. And then a few days later, it would just fully retrace. Um, and so I think people, you know, kind of got a little sick of getting burned on that. There, and I think, and there's actually, there's actually one piece of news, which is super consistent. And I mean, you obviously agree with me on this one, but like negative news, um, you know, seems to be more consistent and, and has a bigger impact faster than positive news. And the, the biggest example is 51% attacks. You know, if you're Ethereum Classic and your network's getting attacked 72 times, uh, you know, that's just a problem. Yep. I think, um, yeah, any, you know, any big, big network attack news like that, I would say exchange attack news seem to, has had less impact. You know, we've had um, a few. Almost no impact. Yeah, we had that $100 million attack, not much. I would say regulation probably still has somewhat of an impact, although less. Um, the, the Dallas Federal Reserve Bank actually put out really interesting uh, research on that. So shout out to the Dallas Federal Reserve Bank. They found that the average positive uh, piece of regulatory news has about a 0.8% positive impact over 24 hours and negative news about a negative 0.8% impact. So, so relatively insignificant compared to, I think, where we were a few years ago. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. Interesting data point. Yeah. Uh, and so, so one other thing you mentioned while you're going through that list was 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 miners. So, you know, you know, what types of as an investor, right? What types of miner data should I be looking at? What should I care about? What I mean, what what tells me that hey, Bitcoin's a, a, an interesting opportunity to buy or to sell? Looking at miner data. So I actually found that we kind of constructed a proprietary mining break even model, and it was was interesting to to see whether this was actually predictive or just kind of what you would expect. But we found out when miners when their break evens were negative, so when they were actually losing money, we were due for a rally, and when they were kind of peaking in terms of their making money, we were due for a, a pullback. And so that could easily just be, oh, hey, well, that's because, you know, the price is way up. So Bitcoin miners are making a ton of money. You're kind of due for a correction. And when the price is way down, you're probably at a bottom um, when they're negative. But it's just a, a useful indicator I found to actually look at that and say, oh, OK, um, we're actually probably looking to hit a reversal here instead of kind of just analyzing the price data itself, also analyzing mining break evens. And when those get very negative or very positive, we're probably going to see it oscillate in that range. So we're probably going to see a, a drawdown or a rally. And so, you know, when when you're placing uh, longer term bets uh, on particular digital assets, right? We talked about a lot of things in, in the short term, but for example, you know, you know, sure, Uniswap has some levels of of fee generation, but you know, how you know. Are, are you investing in any things that are, you know, smaller tokens that are even pre-launch or, you know, with, with your fund or, you know, anything that hasn't really gotten traction yet? And if so, you know, what type of information are you looking at to make that determination, right? Where does, you know, what actually tells you, you know, to buy, you know, what, 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 what kind of gets you to that point? Yeah. So I, I think early on, whether it's, you know, pre-launch and you're analyzing a project or, you know, kind of before the token has done anything, um, in terms of market moves, I think it's really big to look at the product uh, and the potential platform and the potential area the platform is going to be in, right? If, you know, you found the next um, really interesting DeFi project, right? And say, going back to this example, but it may be debt pro protocol, right? There's not really any debt protocol. You, you know what's going to be big, though, in the DeFi space. And so, if you could see a team that's like a strong team that's putting something like that together, that would be interesting where you'd start digging into it. And then you would look at, well, is there a potential availability, a possibility for these fee generations to occur? 
Um, and so then I think once you can kind of line up those aspects, then you would get comfortable with making an investment decision. Uh, once the token's already out there, yeah, you can look at the fees. But I do actually think it's it's more lucrative to get involved with a token before it gets to the point where it's already generating fees. Because by that point, it's going to be somewhat mature and probably a lot of the upside is going to be captured because everyone's going to look at it and say, wow, it's generating tons of fees. So you kind of need to be in a little earlier before that. And I think a way to do that is to kind of a little bit predict that they're going to have large fees in the future. And that's finding a market niche where they can really exploit it where there's be a ton of user demand and whether they have a strong enough team to actually be able to build that and accomplish that. And so what worries you most about the crypto space? What do you think are the biggest existential risks to crypto? And and, and interestingly, you know, it, it sounded like you didn't think there was much regulatory risk to DeFi. So um, kind of love to hear your thoughts there. Yeah, I mean, so so theoretically, you could make the argument, oh, DeFi should be kind of immune to regulatory risk. So I know when BitMEX was getting hit pretty hard by regulators the past week, people were saying, oh, DeFi should theoretically be immune to this. You know, they're decentralized exchanges. I would say, you know, that's theoretical. Currently, I still actually think there is a concern to um, to DeFi and to some of these other projects uh, from regulators, right? You know, I still don't think we have a ton of clarity. Um, I think we have a lot of clarity on Bitcoin and Ethereum. I think everybody who's uh, working in the Bitcoin and Ethereum space, I think they understand the regulatory risks. And I think those are very small, if really any. It's probably, you know, the only regulatory risk there would be the Bitcoin derivatives to retail traders, like you saw with BitMEX. But outside of that, there's probably not a ton of regulatory concern. DeFi is a little different, right? Um, are these decentralized exchanges, do they need to do anything unique to regulators? Um, are regulators going to come clamp down on that space? Uh, what's up with yield farming? How is that treated? Um, so I, I do think there, there's some regulatory risk. And then I also just think there's a user accessibility risk. And I think we solve that a lot more frequently than than what we did in the past so i mean i think dexes were a great example i would have said a year ago or two years ago dexes have a real user accessibility issue this the front end sucked um you they had no liquidity you didn't think they were ever going to do anything they added automated market makers which bootstrapped some liquidity you then saw you know front ends that actually got pretty pretty snazzy um that rivaled coinbase um, some of these other centralized exchanges. And then you saw Uniswap do more volume than some of the centralized exchanges. So I think they showed that they can attract users um, if they, you know, if if we we really push for that. Um, and I think we saw that. So I would think the user accessibility risk that maybe was present a year ago or two years ago, less so today, regulatory risk, still kind of around. Maybe not as much as it was two years ago. There's a ton of regulatory risk two years ago, but still around. I mean, but I don't, I don't get how a, a DeFi platform can get around the Bank Secrecy Act, but BitMEX can't, right? Because there are people that are developing yeah. these platforms, right? Like, inevitably, you have. I, I mean, I don't think regulators are. And I, and I had uh, George uh, Pesak. Uh, we did a, an episode with him, uh, actually a, a live one, right after the BitMEX thing. And you know, like, I, I don't get how if the law in the U.S. is that you have to KYC your users, what about being decentralized gets around that law when you still have people that are developing the platform. Like to me, I feel like the developers are going to be liable. Maybe, maybe the platform is going to continue to exist because it's decentralized, but I don't know. I mean, my perspective is aren't the people that develop these things going to get into a shit ton of trouble. Right. And so that's where I think the regulatory risk would be. I think, you know, the platform would still exist. Maybe you'd have some anonymous developers that are international that start taking over and developing aspects and building it out. So maybe, you know, the, the decentralized platform still exists. But I think the the developers and the people kind of behind it, they have to deal with the same stuff that BitMEX has. And, and we kind of saw that in the past. I think the company was called um, DDEX or Ether. What, what, there was a decentralized exchange that settled. With, Wasn't there like Ether Delta yeah, or Ether something? Delta Another was one of them. Yeah, I think there was two at the time. This was about two years ago. Um, and the SEC, um, I think, went after them. I think they ended up settling or something. But it wasn't a freebie. You know, they, the, the regulators definitely came after them. And so I, I currently don't get how the, the, the current decentralized exchanges got around that and how they're different. Um, so I still think there's a regulatory risk to, to, to the people in that space. Um, but the platforms themselves theoretically couldn't be shut down. 
Right. I mean, I, and I also just think too, like Chainalysis helped the U.S. government find the Twitter hacker in 15 minutes or something stupid like that because that Twitter hacker at some point fiat on ramped, so there was an identity attached to their wallet address. Mm-hmm. And and to me, I just you know I think you know you know crypto is is you know pseudo anonymous, but the second that any of these people fiat on ramp that are anonymous developers and are serving U.S. customers, to me, that's a huge risk, or even like U.K. customers. I mean, the FCA has, has done a lot of crackdowns as well. Right. Um, yeah, I, I think I think there definitely is, and it would be um, you know, kind of interesting to see where that goes and where it plays out, because I, I think that was a concern you know, a year ago with decentralized exchanges, uh, and even IDEX. IDEX, which is a decentralized exchange, but they banned users from New York State and California and Washington because they didn't want to deal with the regulatory issues. Um, right. But recently, you know, everyone can go on SushiSwap and do whatever. Anyone can go on Uniswap. So um, it's interesting to see kind of, I don't think anything's fundamentally changed. So we'll see how that's treated in the future and whether they somehow found a way to, to actually get around it. And so what has you most excited in crypto right now? So <laughs> barring the regulatory concerns, um, I think DeFi is still super interesting. Um, and, and mainly because it allows kind of the traditional financial products that exist in the centralized world. We brought that over to the decentralized world. And I think we're going to be able to do some stuff with that that you couldn't do in the centralized world. Um, so it really kind of is um, a whole new banking world. You know, Bitcoin's exciting in that it's kind of um, a free money, you know, from a market perspective. And there's really, you know, there's no government influencing it, manipulating it. So that's interesting. But the technology, there's not a ton of really real development going on there. And it's, you know, in the the bull case, um, it's kind of similar to gold. So there's nothing too crazy revolutionary about it, in my view. Um, But DeFi has the potential to really kind of build out a whole new financial system. Uh, and I think what we saw at the recent bull run here in bubble, um, that could eventually actually pose a real rival to the current centralized financial system. And that could be really interesting. And so a fun final question that we've been asking all of our guests is, if you could join any crypto company or crypto related organization as an advisor, what company would you choose to join and why? Yeah, that's a, that's a, it's a good question. Um, so there are, there are a few that come to the top of my mind within DeFi that would be really cool to kind of advise on and, and oversee and see what's going on. DYDX is one of them that comes to mind. Uniswap is one that comes to mind. Um, also FTX. I think what FTX is a centralized one, but they've done some really uh, cool stuff and they launched some really cool products recently. Um, FTX is they're some of the fastest shippers in the space. They, they always seem to be launching new products. So that's, that's really interesting. It kind of reminds me of Binance in the earlier days. Yeah, a little yeah bit. exactly. Um, but I think what would even be more interesting than kind of the crypto native space um, would actually be it going to a bank and convincing them to, to really pivot towards crypto. Because I, th- I think that's eventually coming, and I just think they're being a little short-sighted right now. Um, and having come from that background, I-, I get where they're coming from, and I can understand their cautiousness. But if you could just get into the ear of you know the CEO at Goldman Sachs or some of these banks and really convince them to pivot, I actually think they could make a killing. I think you know an OTC desk at some of these banks, they could really do very well. And and yeah, I was about to, I mean, you mentioned OTCDS. I was about to ask, what are the different roles that you think these banks are going to play? Like, do you think they're going to be banking crypto M&A deals? Do you think that there's OTC? Do you envision them offering prime services? Like, what, where, like do, you, do you see them using stable coins for payments because it's just faster than, you know, the, you know, you know, current banking infrastructure and, you know, like, like what, what are the roles that you think, you know, banks will play or can potentially play? Yeah, I, I think all of those, as you mentioned, but I think the most exciting ones would be the ones within markets. So I think, yeah, using a stable coin to, to move around payments and facilitate payment channels, that's cool and, and could be lucrative for the bank. But I don't think it's terribly exciting. And I think kind of the really high margin, profit margin business for them could be, you know, one, an OTC desk, B, using capital from that OTC desk to, you know, take advantage of asymmetric opportunities as they present themselves. One great example was 
during the whole DeFi farming boom, they, they could have been farming, making, making a ton of money. And the other aspect is, is lending. I think lending is going to be big. Prime brokerage would be a huge opportunity for them. Um, right now, you know, lending markets, it's still so super expensive. You go borrow on some of these markets, you're paying 20%, 15%. <laughs> I think, you know, some of the banks could get involved and really bring the, those rates down a ton. And then I think, yeah, M&A in the space is actually one interesting area that I know you keep you keep mentioning. And it, it is really kind of an exciting space where you could theoretically get to a point where you kind of buy up enough of the outstanding tokens to then control governance, right? So it's interesting because you think about decentralized ecosystems as how can you have M&A? M&A is kind of a centralized um, viewpoint, how can you have a merger with a decentralized ecosystem? But you could do it where you buy enough of the, the tokens to then influence governance decisions, um, which would effectively be like an M&A deal. There was actually this this uh, deal done with this VC fund in, in LA. Um, they bought this token called AirSwap, I want to say. I'd never heard of it. It was like a $100,000 token, so it wasn't a very big deal. But they basically did exactly that. Um, that. That's interesting. So yeah, so AirSwap, if if that if it was that one, uh, it's funny because I was going to propose on Twitter that someone should do a hostile takeover of AirSwap. This was during the DeFi bubble where every DeFi token was pumping, and AirSwap was not was not at all, and it just seemed like they had very little active development, very little marketing going on. Um, and maybe maybe I'm wrong. Wait, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna go find this right now. Oh, Airwire, not AirSwap. Airwire Network. Okay, Airwire. Yeah, I haven't heard of them. Um, I have no idea. Their their market cap's one hundred ten thousand dollars. <laughs> but but yeah, I think there's there's definitely possibilities to do kind of more mergers and, and acquisitions in the space. And I, I think banks. That, I mean, I don't think they would really need a strategic advantage in that area. Um, but you're always going to need someone to go out and, you know, and sell and raise money. And I think banks could do a great job at that, do a great job at lending and a great job at an OTC market making trading desk. Cool. Well, really appreciate your time and all of your insight as always. Um, one thing that I want, uh, you know, you to share is John does a great um, newsletter. I think it's every week or multiple times a week now with the charts. So how can people find out about that and subscribe to that? And how can people reach out to you and, and, and follow you as well as TradeBlock? Yeah, sure. So uh, they can subscribe to the TradeBlock newsletter. Yeah, as you mentioned, we do kind of multiple weekly reports and also some big in-depth reports, maybe once a month or so. They can do that on our website. You just go to our website, you go to the blog page and you put in your email and hit subscribe. So you can subscribe to our trade block newsletters and research reports that way. Uh, and then also, if you want to you know, get in contact with me personally, follow me on Twitter um, at John Tadaro one. Um, and that's where, you know, I'll put out a ton of my own insights as well as, you know, some trade block, I'll retweet some trade block reports and stuff like that. So um, that's a great way to, to see kind of everything. And then also um, at trade block, uh, you'll see all the reports as well as, you know, some new partnerships we're doing, new clients we're adding, stuff like that. Great. Thanks so much for uh, joining us. Awesome. Thanks, Josh. Appreciate it.